You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. All right, the red light is on. Red light's on. Green light's on for me, Kirk. Oh, the the green light regarding what? I've run the last two days. Shut your face. How have I not heard this until right now? Now, running is a generous, generous term for what I'm doing. Okay, explain. I jogged at 17.5% incline on the Nordic track. Five by five minutes aerobic two days ago and seven by three minutes yesterday. Now, if we backtrack like a week, weren't you getting sore from going for a walk? Yep. Okay, so how'd it go? It went really well. So I cannot yet run on normal ground. Even like going downstairs, I have a severe imbalance in my legs right now. Like my right leg cannot get balanced and get off the ground very quickly. So I jogged a few, like I jogged around the house the other day, running through the sprinkler with the kids. And it was a a cumbersome chore. It would not be smart to do it, but uphill with no impact, I don't have to worry about getting balanced. I can Mm -hmm. just work on moving my legs forward. So I, tr- I was I was power hiking and it just felt like I should just bump it up a little bit. So I kept bumping the treadmill up. I was at 17 and a half percent and at like two eight, I was like, oh, I could start jogging here. And I turned it to two nine and then three oh and three three miles per hour at 17 and a half incline was like right in the sweet spot where it's like as slow as I can go while still running, but as quick as I can go without having to like actually push power out. Um, did it hurt during nope. or after? No. Wow. Uh, day two, my right calf, like seven or eight minutes in, was already announcing itself like I'm pretty tired <laughs> from yesterday, but no pain. That's awesome, man. That's kind of one of those things where like your tendency is going to want to be to open the floodgates on it, but you have yeah. to be smart and practice days off of running in between and stay at the incline for a few weeks probably. But dude, the run motion probably felt good. The run motion. It's, it's it's so nice to get back. So I think I'll I'll go at 17 and a half for a week, 15 for a week, 12 and a half. Just move down two to 3% every week until I get down to like five or six. And at that point, if my isometric, you know, testing keeps showing me that my legs are close enough to the same strength, then I'll, I'll move to some soft trails, but it's starting. The ball is starting to roll. So how often will you run then? Will you do like an every other day plan or just play it by feel or what do you think? Totally by feel. Last time I kept trying to plan things and then I'd start following things I shouldn't follow. So Yesterday, I wasn't planning on doing anything, but I went for a bike ride with Brayden and I got done and I was feeling loose. So I hopped on the treadmill. If I recall, you had made a 52 week training plan a month or two ago. Is that, is that 52 week training plan been modified by chance? That begins when I can start running. Oh, okay. So it's a loose start time. I mean, what it basically is, is it's two 20 week macro cycles with some downtime throughout there built in. Hmm. it's it's not like I have to follow that, but the principle, the premise of it is what I'll follow, which is a big periodized build with a serious base building phase and then easing into next every stage, test out fully at the end of it, 
reassess, relearn, and then repeat with uh, some some fine tuning. That's a pretty big day for you, man. So I'm thinking maybe two, three weeks, you're ready for a podium. We can just keep that streak alive. How many years to the podium? You're you're running out of time looking at things. Oh, I know. I I mean, I've kind of just accepted the fact that this year is not going to happen. So yeah, no official word yet, though. We don't know for sure what's for going me. On. Yeah, for you. Well, if they put on three or four events, I'm not going to snag a podium because everybody's going to be at every event. So. Yeah. This is just going to be an asterisk year for me. And my streak's broken, then my streak's broken. Then it'll be best out of 10 out of 11, and then 11 out of 12. Yeah. What about you? You want to brag about your ride? Uh, well, I still haven't run. I'm on Your ride. Yep. Well, I know, but I haven't run now. It is four and a half weeks. Um, yeah, I just, I think I just need the people to know that I did a hundred mile time trial last weekend and I smashed you back and I smashed you. you did. Uh, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I had a, I just, I actually, we talked on the phone just before I had it headed out and I said, you know, I'm going to go at least 60 miles, but if I'm getting a wild hair, I'm going to go a hundo, but I didn't, I didn't plan necessarily for it. Um, but I got like, you know, 40 miles in and I was like, this is like easier than it should be today. And then I got to 60 miles. I still like, I, I basically need to get away from my house cause I live in the city and there's stoplights and, you know, crosswalks and it really pisses you off when you're on the bike going for time. Cause you get stopped and it's just annoying. Do you ever consider driving out to a place and starting from there? Uh, I have, but I just, I don't care quite that much, I guess, okay. you know? So I finally got to the County roads and they re-blacktopped a couple of them in the Ooh. last like month. So it is like this like gravy, uh, perfectly smooth county highway with like a little bit of like a, a shoulder to it to ride on. It's a little dangerous because it's it's not meant for pedestrians or bike riders. But And I hit that smooth blacktop and I was like, today's the day. I got to just go because this is just nice. You know, there wasn't cracks in the road every five seconds and there wasn't traffic anymore, people and um so I just went for it uh, and it felt good, man. I'll tell you what, it felt good through 70 miles and I ran out of water. I brought uh, four water bottles with me, two on my bike, two shoved in my back. But I had recalled that there is a well off of one of the bike paths with like a pump, like a hand pump, old school. And I, there's no way I was going to make it a hundo because I was dry to the point where like all you can think about is water, water. It was a hot day. It was 96 degrees when I finished. Yeah. With a real feel of 105 or something because of the humidity. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I uh, got some well water. I drank two full bottles instantly and then filled up two more. And that got me through the final 30. I averaged like 21 miles an hour for my last 20 miles, pounded home. That water reinvigorated me and finished in five hours and nine minutes. It was good. That's that's fine. I, I, I don't want to say it was easy because you can't keep your mental like fortitude that long and make it easy. But I spit, spun at a high cadence. I coasted most of the downhills instead of trying to build up speed. I, you know, worked the kinks out of my back every five minutes just to stay loose and never really grinded until the last hour. And that saved me. And it was fantastic. So I averaged like 149 beats a minute for 500 and for five hours and nine minutes. So I got some good training in that day. That's really good. So yeah. I'm just going to pull out my list of excuses here. All right. First of all, yeah. Let me hear one functioning leg. You okay? Oh, do you have a? Oh, okay. Oh, you you were prepared. He's got a sheet of paper, folks. Yeah. Second of all, um, it was my first time riding my bike. <laughs> okay. I literally tuned, tuned the bike up the day before. 
You were expecting me to try to shame you here, weren't you? Uh, third of all, 40 of my miles are on dirt and grass. Okay. You almost ran over a turtle. I, I, I would have hit a turtle if it wasn't my water bottle. Yep. And uh, fifth of all, whew, you know, I just had an argument with Lisa and I was stressed and my lunar cycle is coming up, you know, all that stuff. So, oh, uh, and you're a Pisces too, which you're, you're, you know, you just, it was the stars weren't aligning for you. If I knew anything about signs, I would refute you with what sign I am. I, I have no idea. I made that up. I don't know what you actually are. Maybe I'm a Pisces. I don't believe in that. Bullshit. So yeah, you smashed me. It, you know, and I, my excuse is going to be it had rained all morning. And so when I had started biking, uh, you know how when you bike after a rain, it just kicked up a bunch of shit into my gears and into my my sprocket. And so it was grindy. Like it was mm. like that sand and dirt got in there. But then the sun got so hot, it all dried out and left. So I didn't have that as an excuse. So, yeah. Well, I, I really want to now not do this solo. I want you and I to take team a hundo and see, see if we can crack five hours. I think we can. I absolutely think it's possible to keep over 20 miles an hour for a hundo with two guys trying to do work. No problem. Oh, for no sure. Problem. Especially if we chose a route. Yeah. My question. So I stopped to pee once at like three hours. I just couldn't hold it anymore. And then I, which was like a minute and a half break. And then I stopped for water, which was like two minutes. So technically I was out there for like five hours and 12 minutes. Did you stop at all during yours? I peed twice. Yeah. Peeing is like a tough thing. I got busted too. I went around a corner and tried to park my bike and I got, you know, I got these bibs on. So they go over yep. my, my shoulders. And so you have to pull these bibs down. So I looked like a hunchback trying to pee because yeah. You can't, and I looked like a disheveled, decrepit old man, and somebody busted me, hunched over myself, trying to pee. And it was embarrassing, and they knew exactly what was happening. You know, uh, I had always looked down on cyclists who wear bibs and cycling jerseys. Like, what are you trying to prove? And then uh, a buddy of mine that I coach, his name is, is uh, Jay. He's out of Rhode Island. I said, "Do I really need to do this?" He said, "Yeah, you got to try it." So I got a pair of bibs. You'll never go back. So much better. So the much better. instantly dropped a ton. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to pee, but much it's much better. And then I finally figured out the cycling top thing. It's, it's some people do it because they're trying to look like Lance Armstrong, but mostly it's so that you have built-in storage in back. So yeah, there's pockets in the back of it. I apologize to all the cyclists I judged over the years. I don't have a cycling top yet, but it's it's coming. I'm thinking I'm gonna get a running public personalized cycling top. Uh, yeah, we gotta we we gotta get that gear in the works, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's just dive into our topic for today, Bracken. Yeah, our goal is to once a month go a listener supported Q and A. And we didn't do one last month. So we're, we're doing one right now. And let's start. Yeah, we got um, we got a shitload of really good questions. It seems like I always think we're going to get less and less questions as we do this. And the opposite seems to happen. We get more and more. Um, should we start with one you wanted to start with? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Mick from Canada A sent us a question a couple of weeks ago. And he's a good friend of ours, good patron of the show. So I wanted to start out right with his because it's a really intelligent question and mm -hmm. it has to be on a lot of people's mind. And that re is in regards to pacing. 
So he said, after listening to one of our podcasts, he did a run with a buddy and his buddy said, you know, I really, I'm liking this, but when they talk about pacing, 5k pace, 10k pace, half marathon pace, how do you determine what that is? Is that going off of what your PR lifetime is? Your, your best you've ever run? Is it going off of what you can currently run or what you want to be able to run at the end of your training cycle or at your next race? And that's a great question. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. It's a question that warrants an entire episode, which we say a lot with these Q&As, but we will do a pacing episode. But I think we should touch on this as much as we can. I have pretty specific thoughts on this. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I do as well, but I think you could really web off of this as much as you would like. Definitely. But the easy, the easy answer, and, and really the right answer is it depends. It depends yeah. what you're trying to accomplish, right? Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of times we get too caught up in pacing. Like, well, if I work, if I'm doing 5K pace and I do my goal 5K pace rather than my 5K, I'm working too fast for my workout. Well, maybe that's 3K pace. And people do yeah. workouts at 3K pace. So are you actually not accomplishing your goal or are you just working at faster than race pace? So it does. It depends on what your goal is. I have one main thought and then a follow-up thought on that. The main thought is that you should always work. Uh, I hate saying always. If there are no other goals other than preparing for, let's say, a 10K race, you should work at slightly faster than what you can currently run a 10K in. So if 10K pace right now is six minutes for you, I think like 550, 555 is a good way to work. Let me interrupt you real quick. Sorry. So when you say that, and I agree with you on this, you're saying for interval type work. Correct. If you're looking at any interval type work that if you're looking at the slowest pace, if we're going to look at true interval work, it should be just slightly faster than what you think your predicted 10K pace is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. What you can currently do that day, I would go somewhere between two and 5% faster than that. At the very slowest pacing for some sort of interval work. Yeah. So if you're doing 10 by thousand at 10 K, I would do it two to 5% faster than what you believe you could run on that day. I agree. Okay. I was just clear, clearing that up. Got it. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I like that clarification. There is another style of training out there, the Dillinger system from Oregon. A lot of uh, what they've done out there is they do race date, they do a uh, race pace and date pace. So mm-hmm. date pace is what you can do right now. On this date, this is the pace I can run. And then race pace is what you want to be able to run in the future. Now I've seen people talk about it the other way. Race pace is what you want to be able to race at and date pace, or sorry, race pace is what you can race right now. And date pace is what you're going to run in the future. It doesn't really matter because they're two different paces and you do one workout at one pace and one at the other. And over time, the paces converge, or you do the first half of your workout at one of those and the second half at the other. And over time they converge. That to me is a very intelligent way of approaching training. However, I don't think it really matters. Again, it comes down to what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to just really extend your speed or are you trying to get faster? Yeah. Either way, slightly faster than what you can currently do, I think is a pretty safe way of approaching intervals. Now, when you say this, are you talking, oh, I have 400 meter repeats, so let's go just slightly faster than 10K pace? Or are you saying for maybe like, say, intervals over a half mile, we're looking at 10K pace. I just want to pry a little bit on that. Do you have guidelines there uh, somewhat? Yeah, well, I believe that you choose your effort you're working at and you choose your interval length and that the pace doesn't matter because you feel your volume to hit that. So if you're doing 30 by 400 or you're doing 10 by 1,000, I would do it at about the same pace. 
just my thousands might have 90 second recovery and my my 400s might have 40 second recovery, but I'm right. doing 30 of them. And so, no, I I'd, I'd actually don't change my pace very much. If I want to change the pace, then I would actually do a specific faster than race pace workout, which is going to inherently be shorter intervals. So if I'm training for a 10K, I'm going to do some 5K paced work to do that over speed, so to speak. That's not truly over speed, but faster than race pace work. And that might be 800s or 600s or 400s. And then, yeah, I'm going to run 10% faster than my 10 my 10k race pace or something like that but if i'm trying to hit a 10k workout i pretty much keep my pace the same throughout so what if you have let's say a standard 12 by a quarter mile with 60 seconds rest just very very standard workout um and you're starting to sharpen or you're hoping to sharpen now what are we telling people i'm telling people in a workout like that we're looking around 3k to 5k pace for example um in a workout like that, if we're looking to sharpen, I think, I think the confusion lies again in what I said initially, and you agree with is that it depends what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And when you get to, when you're working more in like that base or middle phase and you're not quite, uh, have races in the real near future, I think that 10 K pace is like kind of like a really good gold standard. And then you mess with your rest periods or, um, 5k pace to 10k pace. And then as we start to sharpen, then we look at that over speed training where we're going into down into 5k pace, maybe a little faster on some short stuff just to get the wheels used to turning. Um, I assume that's how you approach it as well. Yeah. If I'm doing 12 by thousand, I'm running 3k pace and right. I am going to use that based off what my you mean 12 by 12 by 400, 12 by 400. Yeah. Sorry. I said 12 by thousand, 12 by 400. I'm doing that three K pace or two mile pace. Three K is 3000 meters or two miles, 3,200 and what 18 meters. So it's close enough that I, they're kind of the same pace for most people. But when I'm that close to a race, if I'm sharpening, I have a pretty good idea of what I can run based off all the workouts I've done, hopefully a few time trials along the way. So then I just take my predicted 3K pace based off of what I think my 10K is going to be or based off a mile time trial I've done, and I just run that pace. But mm -hmm. when I'm sharpening, if you're talking pace, I might still keep race pace throughout a workout, but I'm going to, my last rep or two, I'm going to rip it up. I'm going to let okay. loose my last rep. Maybe I do 12 by 1,000. I might do 10 by, I mean, sorry, 12 by 400. I might do 10 by 400 at, 3k race pace and i might try to break 60 my last two reps because mm -hmm. i'm getting ready for race day and i'm going to crank it down and finish nasty but yeah throughout my training cycle i'm always running a few percentages faster than what i think i could run on a race that day that's exactly how i outline it i'm just a few five ten seconds per mile faster than i think i can run on a race that day um, i think that's a good way to outline it um another thing that i like to simplify I don't go off of pacing as much in my prescriptions as, as you do. I know with your athletes um, sometimes, but I like to simply say this, like we're not looking to race today in an interval session. And I want you to pace your effort in a way in which you can be as consistent as possible. And at the end of the workout, you've accumulated the least amount of total time that you can with maintaining consistency. And I know that seems maybe a little complicated, but it's really not. It's saying start conservative, be consistent. And really the end goal of each interval session should be to roughly run the lowest time you can cumulatively for all of your efforts. If you go too hard and then you fade the last few um, really bad, you're going to accumulate more total time. And if you go too easy and then pound home, you might not, you might accumulate a little more time. So I just tell people to get to the end of their session as consistent as possible 
and accumulating the least amount of time and whatever tactically, you know, you have to get to know your body to do that correctly. But that's how I approach almost all of my interval sessions. And that usually makes you fall into the prescribed pace for that day anyways. Do you understand what I'm saying there? I do. And I actually do something almost identical. I would say maybe 40 or 50% of my speed work is pace prescribed because maybe 40 or 50% of the pace work is prescribed for flat runnable terrain. The rest is on trail or something, mountain, uphill, depending on what they're prepping for. So my, my advice is always, you start off at the pace that you know you can finish at. Yes. Like the fastest pace that you know you can finish the entire workout at, and you can always crank it down as you go. And I always want to have one to two reps in the tank. I want to finish saying, you know, that was tough, but I could do another one if I had to. Like gun to my head, I could get another rep or two if I had to. And that's when the workout's done. Yep. Because you're always living to fight another day. As we get closer to a race, we're going to have some empty the tank workouts. But most of the time, yeah, it's we're saying the same thing from two different ends. As fast as you can go without cracking. Like, yep. And then a rep or two in the tank. And you're good. Yeah, another way I like to do this too, and I do this once in a while, I learned this in college, and then we should probably move to our next question. We've got a bunch, but this one we wanted to chat out a little more than mm-hmm. the others, um, is every like third or fourth rep, let's say we'll go back to our 12 by 400 meters. Um, every, let's say fourth rep is an overspeed rep where you shoot for like five seconds faster, something crazy. So you do like reps one, two, and three at your 10K pace, and then rep four, you drop the hammer. Don't change the rest at all. Go right back into rep five at the goal pace, six at goal pace, seven at goal pace, eight, drop the hammer again. And what that does is it teaches you to run goal pace under distress. And so I really like the over, like every, you know, every three, every four intervals in a, in a high rep interval base, loading, dropping the hammer and then having to go back to your goal sustained pace, really effective for OCR especially, and then just maintaining stay power. So that's something I like to look at as well. You know, I don't do that enough. Every time you talk about that, I like it. And I don't implement that enough. It's fantastic, dude. It's fantastic. So there's one other piece I want to add to this, because this, again, could be part of this whole expanded talk. But I want to talk about feeling your pace. There are some athletes who are fast twitch athletes who can nail an interval workout, but can't race at that effort. Mm-hmm. 100%. They can recover quickly and then hit the next interval again and hit recover. And I would tell that athlete they need to do more threshold work, but continue. I would too. But yeah. if you have to do race pace work and you got to do interval work, my but the way that I would recommend people that if you have a hard time, either you're starting out too fast always, or you're inconsistent with your pacing, or you can just nail workouts and intervals that you can't on your threshold runs or your long races, it's time to do running on your recovery. Yep. As soon as you start jogging or running your rest interval, it instantly equalizes your workout. It's like a rev limiter. For myself, I'm more of a fast twitch based athlete. Um, I'd say I'm probably 50, 50, but I'm not a slow twitch based athlete. That's not the, the predominant source of my muscle fibers. So I can go out and hit a, a 30 by 400 workout that says that I could be a 30 flat 10 K runner, but I'm going to run 32 mid or 32 high. You know, if I'm really, really in great shape, I might run in the 31s, but I'm not running 30 flat. So I have to now not take, even if I'm only taking 45 seconds rest on that workout, that's enough that I can recharge my, my, my batteries and go again. I have to jog during my 45 second rest. 
Even if I extend it to 60 and jog it, I will be slower for my workout. So that's something to start thinking about. If your interval work is too easy or not too easy, but it's too fast for what you think you should be doing in a race, start running on your, your rest breaks. You know, that actually, when I, I mostly almost always do that now. And when I started doing that um, a few years ago, I, I noticed a pretty big bump in my stay power during mm-hmm. during races, to be honest. I think that's a very effective way. It's it's a little more uncomfortable in the moment, but uh, it pays off when it comes to racing. You know, it's always a longer duration. So why not keep the run motion going as a recovery? So I agree with that. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, should we jump to our next question? Yeah, let's do that. Um, this is from Adam Believe. He says, I'm someone that doesn't drink much water, and we know that drinking uh, water is an important thing. However, I feel like sometimes the fact I don't drink it often, it can give me an advantage on being able to go longer without water. How important do you think it is to be trained to drink not as much water during long runs? Basically saying, do you think like trying to get through a long run without taking in hydration could benefit you during a race not needing as much? so to speak, like, you know, training, yeah, wanting water on a long run and not bringing it. Same thing could go for fuel, not fueling during long runs and training your body to perform still with a deprivation. How do you feel about that? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes and yeah. no. I, I believe that you can do that by doing your interval work and your up to 90 minute runs with no water, maybe even up to two hours. But I don't, know that there's any scientific benefit that you can actually become better at performing without water if you do two and three and four hour efforts without water. I think that your mind gets better at not craving it, but your actual performance, I I have yet to come across any study that shows you can train your body to not need it to perform. Mm -hmm. Now there is a a bigger window. Science shows there's a bigger window than you think as far as dehydration and performance reduction. You can perform pretty well, fairly dehydrated. Like, Correct. like, like you can lose, like you could lose eight pounds of water during a race and still be performing well at the end of it. Our body does respond well to that. But my philosophy on that is like, I don't think the the benefits outweigh like the risks, so to speak, in the sense where like, I still think like being properly hydrated on a regular basis and then going into a race hydrated and taking that, like, what's the harm? First of yeah. all, and second of all, I just think um, walking through life dehydrated can lead to some other issues too, as far as performance and recovery. So I would say put more water down the hatch. I don't think it'd be. I don't think it'd the benefit. I don't think it's going to pay off in any way that's worth purposefully not drinking enough water. Yeah, I do yeah. not take any amount of water for a workout less than two hours. I just don't. Intervals in ninety-nine degree heat, I don't. I just get through the workout. And I make sure to really recharge afterwards. But if I'm going two hours or longer, I'm going to take water. And that's when I practice fueling. And basically what science has shown us is that in a competition, two hours or longer, it is equal parts preparation and a fueling competition. You just Mm -hmm. have to be able to fuel during that. And so if you have to be taking in calories and water anyways, you might as well just get good at doing that. I'd rather get my mental toughness of not needing water done on my interval days and my medium long days 
and maybe even do some fasts, do some extended fasts or some extended water fasts if you need to on days where you're not going to be doing damage to yourself. If you really need that mental bulletproof feeling of I can do whatever I need to do. So on race day, it's not going to be a challenge. I'm not against doing those things, but I would do it in a way that it can't harm you. Doing a three hour run fasted and with no water has the potential to harm you. And I just don't think the risks outweigh the rewards or reverse. I don't think the rewards outweigh the risks on that one. Yeah. And, you know, on the opposite end of that coin, I see so many damn people going off for like a three mile run with a water bottle in their hands or bringing their hydration vest or their belt. And it's one of my secret pet peeves because you don't, you, if you are even moderately hydrated or balanced, at least you don't need up to 90 minutes. I don't care who you are. You don't need it. It's a crutch. Your mouth gets thirsty and then you train yourself to give it that water and you think you need it and you are dead wrong. Like you're dead wrong. You don't need shit. Even on a super hot day, 60 minutes for sure. Like your body has plenty of water with no danger um, to your health uh, in most situations. I'm sure there's some extreme heat situations, but um, ditch the water bottle. What are you doing? If you're going for less than 60 minutes, like just keep it at home. Yeah. The only caveat to that is if you're going out on trails in a place where if you get lost or injured, you're screwed if you don't have water. So in that case, carry it, but do not let yourself touch it. The moment you drink one time, you're going to drink the rest of your run. That's just the way our minds work. I started noticing that when I started running up Pikes Peak when I lived out in Colorado. I'd carry it in case I rolled an ankle or in case I was going to go all the way up and not have anyone up there when I got there or whatever. And I found I drank the whole way up. Mm-hmm. rather than waiting or doing whatever my plan was going to be. If it's there, you're going to drink it. So yeah, be safe about it. Bring it if you're going to, if you're in a high risk area, but I think most people could get away with doing less except for long runs. I mean, those are days to practice your, your ability to take in water and calories. Yep. You got We got our next one. Yeah. Brian Gowiski messaged me this morning. He said, Hey, I'm super needy. So did you get my messages? I said, Kirk probably did, but let me know. So he texted me. He wants to know if someone can be a world champion off all treadmill work and maybe one day per week outside on a trail or on a mountain. A world champion in what? I assume he means trail, mountain, or OCR. But I guess it doesn't matter. Could you be a world champion runner? Could you, maybe not a world champ, but that, that was his wording. Could you be world class off of treadmill work? Like 90 yes. to 95% of your work is done on a treadmill. Could you be a world champ? Yes. I think, I yes. I mean, I, yes, I think, yeah, once a week with uh, outdoor true stimulus, if you're a mountain racer, that means getting onto some descending. If it, if you have a, nor- a treadmill that can go up to 30, 40% incline to really simulate terrain, my answer is yes. Yeah. And I think the more you get away from a single modality race, the more the answer becomes maybe. But you could prepare for a marathon. You could, this wouldn't be popular, but you could prepare for a 5K, maybe even a mile on the track, on the treadmill, if you had one that went fast enough and could handle the abuse. Because speed is speed, mechanics are mechanics, impact is impact. Now, it's slightly different, and turning would have some wear and tear on your body if you never turn, but I believe, yes, you could. Now, as you get to technical trail running and descents, 
that one day per week would become really, really important. You'd have to be super intentional with what you do on that one day because you have to get all your your downhill eccentric loading in. You'd have mm-hmm. to get your technical running acumen up on just one day per week. But if you were doing, and this is also going to answer another question we had, what can you do other than run technical trails? If you're jump roping or doing plyo, doing box jumps, doing quick little foot drills, I think you can get a lot of the way there as long as you compare it with the real skills on one day per week. Yeah, I I agree with that. You'd have to just be very purposeful with with all of your training, even on your treadmill. You'd have to be very, very, very <laughs> purposeful. Now, one day a week would be crucial um, getting off of it and doing your thing. But yeah, I don't see any evidence to refute that at all. And I mean, look at look at I mean, how many? So Hobie Call says he runs three days a week right now, mm-hmm. three or four. And isn't at least two, maybe all three of those sessions on a treadmill. Yeah. And historically he's gravitated towards that other than maybe one long mountain run on a week when he was really, when he was really competing at a high level. So uh, granted he's put a lot of time out in the terrain in his years. Um, Hobie Call is a treadmill warrior. You listen to Ryan Atkins who spoke about his prep up to Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. And Ryan Atkins said, I said, what was the key to you running well in Jacksonville? He said, I was on the treadmill running 400s. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's kind of your answer too. Granted, again, he does a lot of gritty outdoor work, but um, there's got to be some validity there. Matt Novakovic, at one time, he was as dangerous as anyone in the sport, and he did as close to 100% treadmill work as you'll ever find. Do you know what he did? You probably do, but every single day he was on the treadmill, either running or power hiking, and then one day a week he went to the track for a speed flat speed session. That was his formula. And wasn't those the days when he was like winning big races? Yep. Yeah, Zach Miller. He I've told this story before, but he's the guy who is a world-class uh, runner out of Colorado Springs now. But at the time, he had a job on a cruise ship. And he did every single run around the deck of the cruise ship or on the treadmill. Whenever he got time to work throughout the day, he'd load miles on the treadmill. And when they made port, if he got any amount of leave, that would be the day he'd go out and he would get whatever trails and verts and uphill and technical he could find. And he won his debut 50K and broke Max King's record on that course. So yes, talent doesn't hide if you're training. It -hmm. wouldn't be ideal in many regards because you'd be missing out on a lot of skill work. But at the same time, it would simplify your training to such a great degree that you could just control every single aspect as if you were in a lab. So yes, Brian, you can do it. It will be difficult. You just have to be so intentional about what that one day per week is. I'm wondering if he's just been just avoiding the heat and sitting on his treadmill lately. And now he's getting a little insecure. He wants to know. He wants to know. Um, All right. Next question is from Janet Gubzer. Goobser. She says, as you get older, should you change the proportion of time you spend doing speed work, tempo work, etc.? Do the same intensity ratios still apply? Hard versus easy work. So as you get older, should the proportion of time that you do speed work or threshold work change versus easy work or slow work? Um, but technically, it should. Yeah. I think it should. I think it should. I think as you get older... Uh, you need to put more of an emphasis on overspeed training because that is one of those things. It's a use it or lose it thing, especially the aging athlete. And it's the stuff we start to avoid as we get older. We like the long grindy stuff. We like to just go put time on feet. And we've really earned that by building capillary beds and mitochondria and all those things through years and years and years of training. So we come good at it. It gets comfortable. 
but we lose our ability to run fast and run fast for a sustained amount of time due to a number of factors. So I would argue that uh, the aging athlete should uh, purposely put speed work in more than they used to. Yep. And I'm starting to get to that uh, point myself a little bit as I notice my top end speed is starting to just take a dip. Uh, Ryan Woods mentioned that he was noticing the same thing and was putting 200 meter intervals into his regular workout r- repertoire. So for that fact alone, we will lose our ability to have explosive power, which translates to faster paces. The only way to keep that as much as possible is speed training more often. Um, anything you want to add to that? Oh, I, I agree fully. I think your percentage does need to change. Uh, just like they recommend people to, if you haven't throughout your life, start weight training as you get older, because it battles, you know, bone degeneration. The same thing is with speed. It, yep. it battles speed degeneration. I will also say going with your mitochondria development and capillary beds, those things, if you have maxed out your aerobic capacity, if you have built as much as you're going to build, you don't have continuing benefit of maintaining that volume. Like the volume was needed in order to do those things. Mm-hmm. 100, 120 miles a week for a professional marathoner or a 5K, 10K runner is not the number required to run a professional level time. It's the number required to put in the fitness and build all those systems up in order to run that time. Once your system has been built up to that level, you can reduce volume, not down to 20 miles a week from 120, but you can reduce down into double digits and, um, I'd say maybe even up to like 40% reduction over the years without losing your capillary beds and without losing your extra mitochondria that you've produced. And now you replace that with speed. So yes, I'm a believer in that. You have to change your percentage as you go. You can certainly keep pounding the volume, but if you don't need to, if you're looking at what can I put in for the least cost on my body, you take some of the change out of the volume jar and you put it into the speed jar. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, um, I just used him as an example, but Hobie Call, once again, you know, put in a decade or two of high volume training. And you're right. At some point, you are going to cap out your sort of, I I have to imagine both either due to age or just physical limitations, your ability to increase your aerobic capacity. And then you got to look at um, that money's kind of in the bank as long as you just put a little in once in a while, just deposit a little bit once in a while. So then it becomes keeping your your biomechanics and your neuromuscular adaptation for running fast on a more you know at paces that are uncomfortable um, become more important. And you're right. If you've now if you're a new runner in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you're going to need to put some more time on feet and and put that yes. that longer money in the bank. But if you've been running for years and years and years, reducing your volume by 10, 20, 30 miles a week, depending on what you're doing, but then making up for it with faster stuff is exactly the prescription. I'm going to start shifting to that, you know, more and more as I've been biking, I've been biking 10 to 15 hours a week. Um, I'm in base phase right now. I don't need to go out and start doing long tempo runs and things. I need to start, like I've already done all that, you know, I need to go get the speed work in because I'm putting long, long efforts. And I think a lot of people fall into that boat. We have two ages. We have our chronological age and we have our athlete age. Yeah. And we shouldn't get the two of them confused. You can be a 50-year-old first-year runner and you need to build volume. You can be a 50-year-old 30-year runner who needs to reduce volume and add speed. And the two do not go hand in hand, but they do have an effect on each other. If you take a look at maybe the two best 
um, masters athletes, the three best that we've ever seen. Uh, Haile Gebrselassie, who's late into his 40s now and still running world-class marathons. Bernard Lagat, who's in his 40s, and he won the U a U.S. championship in his 40s. And uh, Meb Kaflevsky, uh, who is, again, in his 40s and won, was it New York City in his 40s? Or is it Boston? We're talking mid-40s, not like 40 or 41. They're like 44, 45, right? Yeah. And yeah. so... Meb transferred a lot of his volume in his aging career to his elliptical, that that on-the-road elliptical. Now, he maybe overplays it a bit because he has stake in the company, but he definitely does volume on that. He's reduced his running volume over the time. Uh, Haile Gebrselassie, arguably the greatest runner of all time, has reduced mm -hmm. his volume and kept running at a world-class level. In fact, he was the, the first person to break 204 in a marathon. He did it late 30s or early 40s, and he did it without any of the super shoes. So um, he is another example. And Bernard Lagat has been low volume throughout his career. Like 50 miles a week. Yeah, he's the exception to the rule. But he puts an emphasis on speed work and extra recovery in his advanced years as a master's athlete, who is also competing as a pro athlete. So if yeah. the best can do it, we can learn from it. We don't need to copy it, but we can learn from it. And wasn't Legat running, I mean, really fast, even 1,500 meters in his yeah. 40s? Yeah, which is a very tough race to sustain as you get older. So proof's in the pudding there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you want me to rip off some more? Yeah, rip off the next one or two. I'm going to pull up one or two. All right. This is from Jimbalaya21. Jim, what are signs my body is overtrained and a recovery week is needed? Good question, Jimbalaya. I have my rule of three for this, right, Kirk? I always talk about three days in a row of things. When yep. I'm coming out of recovery base, um, recovery before I go into base building, I have to have three days in a row where I feel recovered and want to train before I get to train. Because your body can trick you for one or two days. Same thing about going into one. If I have a bad workout, okay, I have a bad workout. If I have two in a row, I start looking at what could be causing this. And if I have three days in a row where I just don't have energy, it's there. It's here. It's real. It's time to deload. That's my rule. I do the rule of three. Three quality workouts that don't go don't, well? Three days. If I have three days in a row where I am low on energy and I'm just not, if I'm just struggling, I know I need to start taking a little bit of downtime. That can be three to five days. It can be a week. But if I have three in a row, I start to really look at what's causing the problem. Now, low energy in life, like getting through your day or low energy when it's time to get to work? When it's time to get to work. Okay. Because I agree with that. Like sometimes you can have a day where you're dragging ass and work's been a drag or life's been a drag and then somehow you get to your workout and it's there. So yeah. don't let life fool you. And sometimes you can feel like, okay, in the day to day, like I'm okay. My energy's okay. And, but then you go hit your workout and you're empty. It yeah. works both ways, but I would let only workout be the decider, not how you feel in life. Yeah. My rule of three applies only to working out uh, life. However, if I have a week or two, if I have two weeks in a row of just I'm sluggish in life, I do need to address something. But in terms of just deload weeks, yeah, three days for me. That's how I otherwise um, we like to do the two week on one week down or three week on one week down. But there have been phases of my life where I'll hit six, seven, eight weeks up and I'm feeling great. And so. I play it by ear. I use that rule of three. I like the rule of three. For me, I notice um, if I have two, 
I use that same rule, but with my quality days, I guess I don't overanalyze my recovery days because often I'm trashed on them. Okay. So I expect to be fatigued. So I would say if I look at like my quality workout that week and then like my long run or long quality workout that week, both go poorly. I'm like, I'm just empty. Um, that'd be my, my sign there. Um, I would say that's the biggest thing. And then the other thing is just dread. Like you don't want to get out the door. Like I say, when training is going well and my body is responding as I want, I'm, I'm part of me is excited to get that workout done and I anticipate and look forward to it. And I want to know my results because I feel like I'm, I'm anticipating something good. And then when you're forcing yourself out the door uh, to get it done and you do that too many days in a row where every workout is like, oh, I got to go do this again today. Even if it's not physiological, mentally, you'd benefit from a break then too. So if you notice that you're dreading most every uh, exercise session, it's time to just remove yourself from it for, you know, two to five days completely and and then come back to it you'll probably be better for it so that that dread piece is big for a lot of people and mm-hmm. usually that coincides with poor workouts for me anyways so i say that that as well you know this doesn't answer the question but it's just an interesting thing that i've realized throughout my my training life is when i'm having the dread and i'm sluggish for a couple of days lisa will tell me and she's done this probably five or ten times in the last decade she'll say maybe you should just go run a time trial or a speed workout because she knows me by now. She recognized my pattern. I will get into mental de- Like I need a mental deload. And sometimes what that means is not deloading the stress. It's deloading the expectation or the current priority. And mm-hmm. if I go out, I would say like 80% of the time, if I'm in a mental funk, if I run a time trial or a true speed workout, I come back reinvigorated. Like, all right, that was awesome. I haven't done something really hard or fast like that in a while. And it kind of like shakes the clouds off me and then I'm ready to go again. If that doesn't work, that's like the nail in the coffin. I know I need time away, but sometimes I just need uh, just to diverge for a couple of days and remind myself what I really love about running, which is running fast. Yeah. When I, uh, when I'm feeling that way, it's funny. I say, you know what? Screw my original plan of 500 foot gain intervals on the Nordic track. I'm going to the track and I'm going to do 12 by 400 Mm -hmm. and just do something faster than normal. Sometimes it's just maybe a nervous system stimulant that you needed to mental stimulation. I I'm the same exact way. I've ditched my original, you know, suffer fest or other purposeful work for just speed stuff. And sometimes that'll shake me out of it. That's funny. You do that. We never talked about that. No. And I didn't even realize it. And then in Lake Geneva, Lisa said it one day, she said, just go run a time trial. So I went over to the park, I ran a 5k time trial and I came home with my tail between my legs. Like, oh man, my wife knew this about me for <laughs> a living and I didn't even know this about my, myself. So she picked up on it and it worked. That's funny. Um, there's one question that just piggybacks this a little bit. So I'm going to ask it right away. It's from Mark Nesky. Uh, Mark asks, how fluid should our training plan be in response to how our bodies are feeling? And we kind of addressed it. It's another good question. How fluid, like how malleable should our training plan actually be uh, instead of sticking to the plan no matter what? Oh, I mean, it should always be malleable, right? Like mm-hmm. Off days, recovery days, pushing a workout back should basically happen constantly throughout your cycles um, in order to remain healthy. But I do think it matters what your goal is in training. If you are doing the 
kind of the lifestyle training where I'm always ready to race. I'm not doing huge periodization. You have to really be malleable with your training because there's going to be big ebbs and flows throughout the year and you've got to be able to ride that out. But if you're doing a big periodized build, that is built on the premise of progressive overload. And you're going to intentionally accumulate fatigue. And you might have two or three weeks where you just have to feel like crap until you've earned your next block of training. And so that's the difference. Are you training to race and racing whenever you want throughout your training cycle and kind of like ebbing and flowing through it, in which case you have to be malleable? Or are you structured out and yeah, this is an eight-week build and it's going to suck and I'm going to feel like death for every day for the last two or three weeks. But... I know I get a massive deload in peaking phase right after this. That would be when I ignore my my rule of three. And when I just say, hey, this is the plan, I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, it's always going to be a fine line to walk between. Like, am I doing myself more harm than good? Or do I need to push through to build up residual fatigue to get that you know proper adaptation? I would say the most common way I ebb and flow with my training and, and the first go-to is, is just don't be afraid to push your quality day one day further out. You know, I'm a typical Tuesday quality day guy, but on days where I'm pretty beat up or I've had a big Saturday effort like that I know is going to sit in my legs a while, just bump it back a day, add an extra recovery run or an extra uh, recovery day, and then just bump it back. That's the the most foolproof way and very simple to just uh, still get the work done, but give yourself permission to take one extra recovery day. Sometimes that makes a really big difference. Um, especially, uh, in days when you're building up some fatigue. So that, that would be one thing I would just rec recommend. Yep. I like it. Yeah. So I have something that kind of piggybacks off everything that we've been talking about with down weeks and all that. Uh, question from Joe, he's talking about what we should do on recovery weeks. Do you eat the same amount? Do you reduce your calorie intake in order to match your your physical output, your expenditure for each day? So as he gains a few pounds, as soon as he goes into a deload week, is that something to worry about or not? I like that question. Yeah. Um, and you could argue both sides of the coin on that. In my opinion, you should eat exactly as you're eating if you're in a full training week. Um, if your tendency isn't to gain weight quickly, mine is not. Now, the point of a deload week is to soak up the training you've done, fully recover, and let your body just um, reach a new level of fitness. And that takes calories and that takes energy, right? So um, oversaturating the body calorically can sometimes lead to quicker and better adaptation, in my opinion. So I wouldn't change anything about, I don't change anything about how I'm eating. Now, I, I am pretty good listening to my appetite, so that's helpful. But um, and I think for a true deload week, if you're restrictive in your caloric intake not to gain weight, I don't know if you will deload and recover and adapt maybe exactly how you would want to. So I'm going to say keep status quo with your nutrition. Uh, I could also, if you wanted me to, make the other argument if I had to, and I could convince you of that too. But I'm going to say eat the same. What about you? Yeah, if it's a deload week, I don't worry about a pound or two. If in a week you're putting on five or six pounds, then there is an underlying issue there because that takes some actual work to gain that amount of weight in a week. And so that means it's time to start analyzing where that issue is coming from. And that's not something you get from two people talking on a podcast. But but you think, okay, if you gain a pound or two in a week, Joe, I mean, let's look at the other factors. You're not sweating as much. So maybe you just have a better fluid yep. balance. Okay. Maybe you... 
you know, you run every day and it for it helps you make two poops a day and you stop running one day and you only poop once. Well, there's your extra pound there. Like little right. things like that, like can add, can add up. And so I wouldn't even point the finger at you're actually gaining a pound or two of fat. There may be some water level, you know, hydration stuff going on there. It might be some, I don't know, other, other factors, I think is what I'm, what I'm yeah. getting at. So I would eat the same. Yeah. Especially if, especially if you know you're going to start training again in the high volume week following, you're just going to lose it right away. Like, who gives a shit then? Yeah, if you are disciplined and structured in your training, a couple pound fluctuation does not matter. If you struggle with discipline in your life and your training ebbs and flows a lot, and you're always putting five or six on and then trying to lose five or six, and then putting ten on in your off season and trying to lose twelve, that becomes an issue. But I race. Even going back to college, I generally raced best at about 167 to 168 pounds, mm-hmm. pound or two either way. My off season, I'm probably 170 to 173 usually. And in Colorado, I got down to 163 at one point during a big block of volume and a tons of vertical gain. So my, I have a 10 pound swing in a year from my normal racing weight of 166, 167 170 to 173 off season and 164, 163 at my ultimate peak. But that's throughout 365 days. And usually it's more like a five to six pound swing. And usually it's not even much a body fat percentage swing as it is muscle mass swing. Yeah, probably for me, it is. Yeah. I I mean, I would say of that, maybe half of it is body fat Mm -hmm. of those 10 pounds, maybe four or five is body mass and maybe four or five is fat. So yeah, and and so my point is, if you're swinging single digits, maybe even up to 10 or 12 in a year, that's pretty acceptable. But if you're fluctuating multiple times in the year and you're just struggling to discipline yourself in training, then yeah, there's broader issues to address in your life. But no, deload weeks, everyone gains a pound or two or three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm satisfied with that. The only issue is race deloads. You don't wanna put on a ton of weight right before a race, that's not useful, but you also don't want to go into a race depleted. So that's the week where you have to be pretty on top of what you're eating and why. You don't want to be hungry all week, but you don't want to balloon up right before a, a 3K race. Balloon up five pounds right before an ultra is probably a good thing for you. So again, it's mm-hmm. what are you training towards? Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, just a little more density the two or three days leading into the race if you want to watch your diet first half of the week and then second half of the week just oversaturate a little bit to minimize weight uh, gain damage. Um, Gentleman Mark Nesky asked a number of questions and he has um, two more that I want to actually get to. Uh, One is, how should we maintain mobility in general? Should it be a part of our training plan? And I simply want to say yes. I think that it should be a part of your training plan. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. I just know, again, if you, the older you're getting and the harder you're training, the more it's like necessary. I prescribe for my athletes to do a thorough um, stretch after, before is almost a waste of time other than your dynamic work. Um, But after their quality sessions, I like them to get, so three times a week on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I like, I say spend 20 to 30 minutes actively working through your range of motion and stretching on quality days. And then if you need to roll or other stuff in between, uh, that's fine. But um, I find that that does some good uh, for for me and my athletes. If you can get three actual quality stretch sessions in a week, I find that to be enough if they're purposeful, not like passively going through the motions. 
in my stretch sessions, I will rework up a sweat, for example, working into my, my positioning. So, you know, so hard, but again, that's after quality work, uh, where our muscles are the most warm, the most fatigued, the most apt to, um, develop and increase the range of motion. So that's, that's my philosophy on it. Do you have any, any philosophy on that? Uh, I agree with everything you said. The only thing I would say is that uh, my kind of guide that I use is on quality days or races, I have to spend as much, at least as much time cooling down as I spent preparing for the workout. Sure. And where I'll do a little bit less jogging, a little bit less dynamic work. And like, I'm not doing fast strides in a steady state after the race or after the workout that will get translated into more time spent on my body. So yeah, yeah. at least as much time as you spend afterwards as you would spend before. It's just such an overlooked thing that the guys that are really and the girls that are really performing well spend so much time doing that the everyday folk does not. And maybe there's a reason why people are crushing races and you're not. <laughs> and that could be part of the equation. Um, one other question Mark asked that I also like, and I have a thought on this that I want to preach, is aside from nutrition and sleep, what do you recommend to maximize recovery? Okay, so he took two of the glaringly obvious ones out of the equation, sleep and nutrition. Do you have anything that comes to mind right away? No. You don't? No, other than I like doubles. I like some sort of secondary movement in your day. It can be as simple as going for a walk or having a, a yoga session. It can be as intense as hopping on a bike or going for another run. Um, but finding a set... The, the last movement of my day should not be my hardest movement of my day. Mm, I like that. I think getting out and getting moving for another time, even if you're fatigued, like an easy bike ride, even a, a walk, my God, sometimes that just really works out some kinks. And yeah, you're going to feel sluggish for that second workout, but it's setting you up better to recover for the next day. And that's the point. One thing that I want to touch on for recovery that we haven't really talked about yet up to this point in our podcast is the recovery component of heavy strength work, the hormone inducing uh, principles of putting your body under a heavy load is scientifically proven to increase uh, recovery time, even for an endurance athlete. So sometimes for me, I do strength training on my recovery days after a quality session. Well, in that stimulus, and I'm not talking about trashing my legs. I'm not talking about things like that. But I just like to interject, you said it increases recovery time. I just want to be clear what we meant by oh, that. Sorry. Decreases recovery time from yeah. the previous sorry, um, session. So a lot of times people shy away from the heavy weights when they're fatigued and they're overloaded and running a lot. And I find this is fact for me. And I know other athletes can attest to this is that a nice heavy lift on in between days, between run days or coupled with a recovery run will speed up your recovery because of the hormone production um, something about just the extra stimulus on your nervous system induces your body to go into more of a recovery mode. Now, I'm not telling you to go max squat and deadlift and, and end up all creaky the next day. But for me, I can deadlift. I can do five by fives on deadlifts and run really well the next day. Because once you're in a routine that way, you're not getting sore every day. Maybe a little fatigue from the deadlift itself. But the recovery principle it applies for me Sets me up better for the next day. It just does. Even if it's weighted pull-ups or a heavy overhead shoulder press, just compressing the spine, forcing your body to get uncomfortable on those recovery days through heavy strength work um, really helps you recover. And it's not a way to trash your legs either. Um, 
if you need to leave them alone. So I really like heavy strength work as a recovery tool. In fact, I started doing heavy deadlifts and squats a couple of years ago on my Fridays. And Saturdays were always my long efforts. Friday's my shortest run of the week. And I was putting, I was doing a three rep or five rep program. I mean, heavy, really uncomfortable stuff. And looking back, the number of Saturday workouts that I popped that went well were incredible. It was almost like clockwork. Didn't matter what I did the day before that I did heavy squats or heavy deads. My body was still just recovered and ready to go. Now, if I keep that out of the equation on Fridays, my Saturdays don't always go necessarily predictably well. And I noticed there was something to that. And now I'm a firm believer anyways, that heavy strength work uh, aids recovery. I like that. Almost all my recovery days contain a lift. Yeah, even even if it's not super heavy. Predominantly upper body. And these are days where after big efforts, I do something different. I may not full squat, I may quarter squat, or I may box squat. You know, mm-hmm. I may do something a little bit less um, engaging of all my muscle fibers, but I do a lift on most of my recovery days. I come off a race weekend and I do an upper body lift with a little bit of deadlift in there just to to do something that requires my body to release all those good chemicals. Yeah, exactly. And and we're not talking fast. I'm not talking fast stuff. My heart rate's not getting up. I'm lifting heavy and then I'm standing around for two minutes. Yep. I'm not getting my heart rate up. That's not the point. This is a totally different stressor. So it's not like you need to go in and do these high tempo circuits. I just think that heavy, slow, lots of rest. You might only do three or four different lifts. You might even not barely break a sweat because you're taking a lot of rest. That's the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. No, that's good stuff. Yeah. All right. I have one uh, guy message. We've talked about drop a little bit on a Q&A, but it was months ago. So he said, can you just talk to me about drop? A, what exactly are people talking about when they talk about drop on your shoes? And what is the real difference between zero and four and 10 millimeter drop? So okay, well, go ahead. Drop itself is just the difference in the stack height of your shoe. When they talk stack height, that means from the, the rubber that touches the ground, whatever's touching the ground on the shoe to whatever is touching your foot. That is the stack height. And it's generally different between your heel and the ball of your foot. And so the drop is just the difference. It is the slope basically from what your heel is to what your forefoot is. That's all that is. And so it's measured in millimeters. And zero drop is zero. Most of the time, sometimes you might get a one or two mil drop on a zero drop shoe. And a high stack height is basically considered 10 and above. Mm -hmm. Some people would say eight and above, but uh, like anything in life, there is a bell curve. And stack height is a bell curve like anything else. So you have the people at the bottom of the bell curve who respond really well to zero, one, two, and then it starts going up. And it probably crests around six to eight, and then it comes back down nine, 10, 11, 12. And like anything else in life, there's not a one size fits all. It's finding the one that works for you. Studies, science, anecdotal responses, the medical field has all shown that the most calf and Achilles issues comes from drops that are zero to two and 10 and above. If you're too flat or too steep, you put excessive stress on your Achilles tendon in your calves and also on like your fascia on your feet and all that kind of stuff. However, that can also be the prescription for other people's injuries is to go a high stack height or low stack mm-hmm. height. So there's not one size fits all, but generally the middle is the safest place to start somewhere in that six to eight drop range. 
and then you branch out one way or the other. So that's my intro to stack height. If you had to pick for racing and training one drop that you had to stick with, mine would be a four. Six. Six? Mine would be four. Yeah. Uh, the Scots have six, I believe. The yep. um, the Skechers Razor is, I think, a six. Uh, Hoka's are generally between four and six. Four mm -hmm. feels racier to me. Six feels mm -hmm. like I can train in it, but also race. So I'd be happy anywhere three to six. Uh, the Innovate X Talent was always three. And I raced great in that, but I don't think I would train in that. So I love racing in three to six and training in four to eight, but I don't go much above eight. In fact, I've talked about this on another one, but the original Nike uh, Vaporfly was a 10 mil drop and they reduced it down to eight for the Alpha Fly because mm -hmm. they had too high of an occurrence of Achilles and calf issues coming out of that. Part of that had to do with the super soft foam combined with the plate combined with the height, but Nike who puts more money into shoe research than anyone and they created a true super shoe, reduced their stack height slightly because they thought it was more uh, sustainable long-term for people. Mm -hmm. um, all right, I don't have anything to add to that. I'm gonna add that it depends on what you're running. If I was on the roads, I'm running in six mil or above to race in probably. If I'm on trails, the lower your stack height, inherently the more stable you are on technical terrain. Yeah. And so that's, and, and on soft terrain. So that's why you can run a three mil X talon and feel like you're never going to roll your ankle or put on a 10 mil or an eight mil. I forget what it is that, uh, what is it? The, um, sock knee peregrine and people roll their ankle like crazy going down steep, rocky terrain in that shoe. So it's finding the drop. And that's part of why people generally don't roll their ankles like crazy in hokas. They think because there's a huge stack height, they're going to be unstable. But because there's that cup in the heel and because the drop is only four to six, they're a lot more stable than you'd expect. So don't get stack height and drop confused. Yeah, that's a good point. A uh, question that's probably going to be best answered by you by OCR Medic. Oh, I coach him. That's Nick. How can I train with a three-month-old? That's all it says. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get a really supportive spouse and you get a running trailer. Not trailer, uh, stroller. Yeah, get the bob. And Nick, you tagged us in a post. You were running with that baby. I saw that. You're set up just fine. The key there is you've got to time the sleep. When the baby's asleep, you're out there hammering. And that's pretty much it. That small three-month-old baby controls your life. And if you if you can and don't already have a treadmill at home, yeah, um, for quality work, it's tough to push the bob and and get that in. But uh, you can set baby on the ground right next to you and get that work done. So treadmill, if you don't have one at home, would be a really good investment. I was against treadmills until we had our first child, and I've owned a treadmill ever since. And precisely right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack Bauer OCR says. I don't know if you got his questions, but it says, check your DMs for my question. Did you get this? Because I didn't get it. No. It says, check your DMs for my question about switching machines, inclines, hiking, running between rounds. I didn't see anything, Jack. Are you confused, brother? Did you get anything? Comb through it real quick. I, but I, did, I did get a long text from Jack that I missed. In combing through the DMs, I found a text from him. So, Jack, this is from July 14th. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. It's multi-paragraph too. He took his time on this. Mm. So I'm going to read the whole thing out if you guys will bear with me. 
I liked your doubling episode. I've literally never doubled, mainly due to work, time, and class constraints. I assume he means school, not social class, but with Jack, you never know. You never know. <laughs> However, I've always done random squats, push-ups, lunges to quote-unquote grease the groove. My question for you is, what have two of the most successful people in the sport done, Hobie and Cody? They always take Sundays off, and I've never heard them mention doubling in any video features. They work up at they wake up at five, finish everything by seven, so they can be ready for work and family. You may know differently. Bernard Lagat does basically the same thing, and he's basically the only guy who stayed competitive at thirty-eight to forty-two. False. We just listed three others, but also correct. You're smart, Jack. Do you think that the full rest day helped give them more longevity versus most runners who do seven days a week for twenty years? They're obviously focusing on quality over quantity and have a huge base from younger years. Is that the only reason they weren't doubling? trying to figure out because I want the extra percent and of improvement while making sure my body holds up long term. Wow. He took the time to write all that. I got that. Was that a group message? I think I got that message too. Well, I feel less bad if he copied and pasted to everyone in the OCR community and I didn't respond, but I do feel bad that he wrote all that and didn't get a response from me. We got, I got that message from him too. He probably copied and pasted to both of us, which I appreciate. I believe I responded because I'm like a decent human being, but um, anyways, <laughs> so uh, with that, first of all, this is a long game. We're playing the long game here, I think, when you have to look at things uh, from above. And so I am a huge uh, advocate of the full rest day per week. I always have been. One, it keeps just the general fire going, makes you craving your training next week. Um, so I'm a big advocate of that that one day off a week. And I think you are too, Bracken, aren't you? Don't you take a day off a week? Or do I you not? I do, unless I get there and just don't crave it. And then okay. I'll do it midweek, like maybe once every nine days, or I'll just roll it to the next week. But I, I take it as needed, yeah. I think there's something to that. I think there's something, you know, their their faith, I believe, forces them to take Sundays off, Cody right. and Hobie. You're not going to lose fitness in a day off. In fact, it may help you recover better and give you time off. You need to prepare better for the next week and absorb the previous week's training. So, And then with the, the non-doubles, I don't know if they do double or not, Bracken. You might know better than I am, but guys with families and busy lives, it's hard to double sometimes. Um, but you have to look at their consistency over years and years and time and time and and we're talking about the 1% difference. Maybe Cody or Hobie would be 1% better if they were able to double. I don't know. Um, but I, I believe from what I understand that what he says is true. Um, sometimes yeah. I know Hobie does strength workouts as a secondary separate workout. It's mm -hmm. the only thing I know. Yeah. Uh, what do you know? Well, they, they also lead very, they lead very active lives. So Cody coaches track, cross country, and wrestling. And mm -hmm. he's not the kind of coach that sits on the sideline and win pants with a clipboard. You know, he's, he's in there doing work with his team. He also, for a long time, was building trails in the summer. Um, he would go out with an axe and a flashlight, and he would maintain trails in Utah. Um, had several mountain lion encounters, if you ever get to ask him about mountain lions. But so he's on his feet, and he's a, a shop class teacher. So he is teaching on his feet. All Shop class is not a class where you can sit on your butt and watch kids work at mm -hmm. machinery. So he's on his feet all day long. He's working and teaching. He also has like 12 kids, just like Hobie. So their lives are very active and on their feet. So their cumulative volume of living is different than a lot of people. 
It's a good point. And Hobie, yeah, Hobie, same thing with his job. He's constantly moving as an electrician. And their play with their kids is active. They run little obstacle races in their backyard. They're always doing these crazy challenges. They're, Hobie does, I don't know if he does anymore, but he used to do barefoot running on a gravel road. Um, he'd do a quarter mile, half mile, up to two miles times a week to toughen up his feet. So like these are all little things that are sprinkled in throughout his day, but they're also active people. You know, it actually just thinking through this as we're talking, you know, the person that would benefit the most from that double or extra recovery session is the person who sits in front of a computer all day, the person who's inactive, because you are actively recovering. If you have a job on your feet, I'm a personal trainer. I'm on my feet all day and I'm picking up heavy weights to hand to people and I'm moving through life and that helps recover. But if you're somebody with a pretty stagnant nine to five, uh, that second workout would probably be even more important for you as far as setting yourself up well for the next one, I would say, versus the active job or the, yeah, yeah. And yep. Cody's not low volume. He's not a mileage hog, but he runs. In fact, he continued training in his post-collegiate life the exact same way that he trained in college. And he said so. I just do the workouts my coach wrote for me in college, and I keep doing them, and I do them in the mountains as well. And mm -hmm. both of them, Hobie in particular, is the perfect example of what we talked about. He built up his capillary beds. He had a lot of mitochondria production. He had his aerobic capacity maxed out when he was running 70, 80, 90, 100 mile weeks throughout, uh, not in high school, but he did big volume on the bike and running in high school, big volume in college, big volume chasing marathon, uh, the Olympic trials and the marathons post-collegiately. He probably maxed out his aerobic capacity. And he then went into a pure quality over quantity. And what people miss when they look at how Hunter trains differently than other people or how Hobie trains differently or how Matt Novakovich trains differently, they miss the decade and a half of work they put in prior. You yeah. can't come into the sport and be low volume with a ton of intensity and expect to get better year after year for a decade if you have not put in that decade to decade and a half of aerobic development prior to becoming a quality low mileage based runner. And that's the key. Yeah. Like the sexy part is what you're seeing. The unsexy part was grinding out 90 mile weeks for eight years prior mm -hmm. to doing the cool style of training that they're doing now. That's a, that's a very good point. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. Uh, next question. We have so many to get through. Honestly, we're never going to get through them all. So I'm going to start picking and choosing. Okay. Okay. Icor St. George. He takes us in a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Um, and this is something to piggyback what we just talked about balancing heavy lifts or hypertrophy. So as not to be too sore for run workouts. And I love that question because we all battle with that. Well, if I do legs and squats today, I'm going to be sore for tomorrow and yada, yada. And it's a valid, valid concern. Um, my, my big thing with that is keep your rep range low. Believe it or not, going heavy and low rep is way less likely to make you sore than going a little lighter and higher rep. It's also a lot less likely to create residual fatigue to impact an endurance type training. So what we do for training guys is so catabolic, meaning it breaks down our muscles by endurance training that balancing it with really anabolic work or hypertrophy work is helpful to balance out like our athletic being as a whole. So I think every endurance athlete should be lifting heavy, low rep for in a general sense. And that doesn't often make you sore. If I go and do weighted pull-ups and put a hundred pounds around my waist and do five reps of a hundred pound pull-ups, 
I will be way less sore after that than if I went and did a hundred pull-ups for time. Let's say mm -hmm. my lats are going to be blown out the next day versus the heavy load. No squatting, deadlifting all works the same with me, unless you injure yourself, of course. So my, my, my thing is don't hammer too many heavy leg lifts in one day. Give yourself one, maybe two, um, and go low rep, high weight. And you'll be shocked how well your body can still perform the next day. That's, that's my advice right there. Having been someone that went almost a decade between, maybe not a decade, eight years between college heavy lifting and when I started re-putting in heavy leg lifting into my programming post-collegially, post I went through my six-week stage where I couldn't do both simultaneously. I was struggling. My runs, I felt it felt dangerous to run the next day down a hill because my legs were shot. And so my answer to that is Kirk is absolutely right. And you need to proceed that with finding your time where you're going to take your damage. Like this mm -hmm. is my off season. I'm going to put in my four weeks of lifting or my six weeks of lifting and getting used to running while lifting. And it's not going to feel great. And then it's going to be done. Now that's in my system. And now, you know, months later, you're to the point where Kirk is where he can squat and deadlift the day before a 17 mile hard workout. You just put yep. your time in and then it doesn't become damaging anymore. You don't get sore from lifting heavy weight, low rep once you've put in your time. So just put your time in and now you don't even have an issue balancing it anymore if you keep your rep scheme low. And there may be some a little residual fatigue that next day, but it's going to be minimal enough where you should still be able to get out of that quality effort what you want. And the other thing I'll say is know your body. For me, I know if I do really heavy split squats that get nice and deep and low, my ass is going to be sore still. Like, So if I have a workout that's super important to me, I'm going to avoid those things the day before and maybe hit them the day after instead. Um, but when I have my legs parallel, like in a deadlift or in a squat, I don't get as sore unless I really, really, really spend time working on it. So um, that's just what I've learned over time. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to throw in there? Sometimes we look at the snapshot of our week and we apply that to the greater scheme of our fitness. When in reality, it's a long-term game we're playing. If you go down, if you're doing five by five or three by five, and you, one one week you go two by five or one by five to give yourself some extra rest for workouts, that gets lost in the slipstream of all your workouts. You are not a different athlete by losing a set or two in a week in order to nail your quality day. Mm -hmm. You are the result of your entire year. You're not the result of that one week. So just like no workout is worth compromising all the other workouts, all the other workouts are not compromised by one subpar workout. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if you have these in front of you, but one of my athletes, Luke Ninja Skywalker. I saw that one. Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, there seems to be a theme now that we're talking this out, I feel like, which is interesting now that we're at the point of the year we're at. And I think people have been training hard. It's just interesting seeing what's coming through. Yeah. Um, and Luke's been killing it, dude, by the way. He has been improving like crazy. It's been fantastic working with him. He's also opening a gym down in Texas. He's busy as shit. He's got kids and he's still finding a way. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. He's been on board for three months now. Um, brought his mile from like 5.30 down to 5.06 and his 5Ks lost, God, almost a minute. He's been crushing it. But anyways, um, he asked, is it best to grind through a workout if you're tired or best to stop if you're not to standard? Floor's yours, Bracken. Oh, man. So I, this is one of, like you said before, I could argue either side to this. I believe both sides of this coin. I believe that there are some workouts where like when your pace breaks, you're done. That's the end of your workout. Call it 
and celebrate it. I got five reps today. I'm going to hit six next time. There are other days where you just finish the rep and you either take extra rest and move on or you just bear right down and it is an exertion day. You do not care. If I have to finish this workout at 11 minute pace, I'm finishing this workout because in a race, I don't get to just say, oh, I made it two thirds of the way through. Now I DQ. No, I'm going to finish the race on fumes if I have to, but you have to be able to race with crazy amounts of exertion to get less crazy amount of pace. So depending on the workout and depending on where I'm at in my cycle and what my purpose is, the answer is yes and no. And I know that doesn't provide clarity. Yeah. But I think you bring up a good point about, um, I have workouts in my over speed training where I will say, okay, I want to hit X pace for every rep because I, I want to train a pace that I'm not familiar with. And that I haven't been before. Let's say that's 65 seconds for a quarter mile with only 60 seconds rest. That's really burning the candle. And I may know I may only eke four or six reps out of that. And then it's time to call it. But I don't think those workouts are common. So I don't think it applies to most people. Um, I think the answer is push through. Okay. If it happens on one workout and if it starts happening on the next and then the next, that's when you start pulling the plug and then you start reevaluating a recovery week. I say one workout, push through if you're not to standard, if it's not glaringly ridiculous. Um, but if it's a theme that you're not hitting your standard that you believe you should be at, then I think then it's, it's time to go into that maybe deload week. Um, but I would say my general tendency would be to push through uh, if it's a one-off. Okay. Yeah. If I'm do now I'm a believer in speed extension. I believe that I'm trying to get to a 10K pace then that might be my 5k pace now, but over the year, I'm going to extend it and extend it and extend it out. And with that kind of workout, my workout's done when I can't keep that pace anymore. Mm -hmm. There's there's no sense running. I'm prepping to run a 10k. There's no sense running that at eight minute mile if I'm trying to run it at five minute mile. So I call the workout when I can no longer hit the goal of the workout, which is a specific pace. But on a threshold day, if I'm doing threshold work, I finish my workout because my body doesn't care about the pace, it cares about lactate accumulation. That's what it cares about. It cares about being better at using it for fuel without letting it overload my system. I can do that at nine minute pace. I can do that at 20 minute pace if I'm dragging a tire up a hill. So I don't care about pace on that day. I need to grind that workout out. Long runs, unless I'm trying to hit a specific pace, if I crumble on my long run, I'm finishing my long run outside of of, of injury because that is a mental resiliency day and OCR work. If I'm doing compromised running, I finish my workout. Even if it starts to tank. Yeah. Cause pace doesn't yeah. matter. Effort matters while you're compromised. So again, it depends on the purpose of my workout. It's interesting. I just talked to an athlete about this. Uh, I was rereading a couple articles, and one of them was talking about the difference between the Kenyan mindset and the American mindset. So if uh, if 20 Kenyans and 20 Americans went out for your workout, and the, let's say you're doing minute on, minute off for 30 rounds, well, the world champions are at the front of each pack, and everyone runs with them. The American drops out after 10, goes home, and he's like, man, I'm never going to be a world champion. The Kenyan drops out after 10, and he goes, I made it 10 rounds at world champion pace. Mm. you believe I just did that? And it's just the difference in mindset. They did the same work, but the Kenyans are focused on running the correct work, 
where the Americans are worried about hitting the correct volume. Like Kenyans want to hit that speed that they're going to need. And that's why eight of them will show up to a race and they're all going to run a Ameri- world record pace and six are going to drop out, one's going to fade, and one's going to hit the world record. Where mm-hmm. Americans are going to show up and run the pace they're capable, they know of running, and they might take fifth through 12th. Some might PR, some might have a disappointing race, but no one's setting the world record. And it's just the difference in mindset there. So some workouts, you just got to go out and do what needs to be done. But other days, you do have to have the American mindset of, I'm running because I need to complete the duration today. I'm going to match my effort to the duration. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And then Kenyans, I feel like in general, also have the opposite philosophy on recovery days. Then metrics don't matter at all. Yeah, You have a world-class uh, 5K runner under 13 minutes in the 5K, and he's still running eight-minute pace on a recovery run. That's not a joke. That is what happens. I had a couple of... Um, Kenyan athletes coincidentally training up in my neighborhood here in, in Minneapolis can host a hub of endurance athletes at yeah. times. Um, we have, we have some high end running community they, they here. They call it the Rift Valley. The what? The Rift Valley. I haven't heard that, but there's an area in Africa that's the Rift Valley, but uh, the, Rift uh-huh. Valley, the Rift Valley in that Minnesota, that the Tri-City area has a ton of what they would call the B-level Africans who come over and just clean house. Correct. Well, there was a group that was living by me and it must have happened like every quality Tuesday, they were on a recovery run in the same neighborhood and we hit the same areas and I'd be flying by hustling, look, feeling like a stud in this group. It was two men and a woman and they, they looked the part. There's no question. I've also seen them doing fast work and they were jogging so, so slow in their full wind pants. Like they had like eighties, nineties gear on the old school Nike windbreaker stuff. And, um, if they were running eight minute pace, I'd be surprised. So anyways, it's just interesting that it's just another testament to slow down on your easy days so you can ham your hard days. Yeah. Um, they just have that so dialed in. Um, Jay Perizzolo says, do you prefer to drop frequency, intensity, or length of sessions in a deload? Length of sessions. Length of sessions. That's an easy answer for you. Yeah, I do both. Um, for most athletes, I decrease. I take out one day a week of running for that deload week and I replace it with a cross training bout. And then I also decrease the duration of sessions for their run workouts. So I do, I do both, but they're replacing one run with a cross training session um, on purpose. And that's a philosophy that it's a formula that's worked for me, but it's not saying they're taking that day completely off. They're just doing a non-impact day instead. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty similar, really. I would say on that. I do the same thing on when I'm peaking. Hmm. Yeah. I reduce, 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 but keep the intensity. Yep. Um, next question from Sam Khan, the man Khan. It's a good name. Uh, I'm sure we're butchering some of these. We'll get a message. But uh, Kirk, how are you dealing with plantar fasciitis? I have it off and on too and wondering how you cope. Uh, first of all, a lot of questions for me about plantar fasciitis. I don't have plantar fasciitis right now. Rich Diaz referred to it in an episode that was an issue I had years ago when I had went to visit him with Hunter McIntyre. Uh, I don't have uh, plantar fasciitis, but I will tell you what can get rid of it. Um, I did a lot of exercises, physical therapy, stretching, mobility work, all with some benefit, but not the cure-all. Um, I struggled with it for a year on and off, and in one and a half weeks, it went completely away because I did something called ESWT, or known as shockwave therapy, Um It is a small bullet in a little metal gun that just basically beats the shit 
out of whatever you place it on. It's very painful. They put it right on the source of the pain in your heel or any other injury, soft tissue. Um, completely broke up the fascia in there, uh, allowed new blood flow to get in there. And within two sessions, I had no heel pain ever again and have not since. I just knocked on wood. Um, I would seek out shockwave therapy or known as ESWT. And I will give you a curt guarantee that it will help at least in some capacity and hopefully maybe long-term. Um, it's almost fail safe for plantar fasciitis. So that's my go-to there. Why is that not out there more? I don't know. Um, I, I don't have an answer for that, but all I know is that's one of the therapies I receive on a regular basis when I'm going to physical therapy for stuff. Uh, and it's, it's really a saver on soft tissue. So I don't know. Well, all I know, all it matters is, you know, soft tissue, a lot of soft tissue issues heal slowly because we have limited blood flow to those areas, tendons and ligaments in particular, fascia, things like that. So they just can't regenerate quickly because they don't get a lot of blood supply. There's very, very, very small capillaries that get into those areas. So what you do is this thing goes and beats the shit out of it, creates a ton of inflammation. And inflammation really is the healing process for injuries. That's why our knee swells up if we hurt it or our, our ankle when we roll it to help heal the process. And this just speeds it up. So it breaks up the fascia. At, at the same time, it also induces inflammation, which creates the blood flow it needs to actually heal itself. So that's the concept there. And I don't really know why it's not why it's not more prevalent. Maybe it is. Is it pricey? Um, I pay 150 bucks for the session. The session's an hour. Um, so yes, I guess, depending on how you look at it, it was cheaper than going to physical therapy every week yeah. for two months trying to fix it. An hour of a specialist procedure that can cure something is worth 150 bucks. Yeah. So I would look into that and see if it don't, it's going to be the longest hour of your damn life and you're going to be sweating and cussing and you're going to think this is hurting you because it's, it's that painful, but it works. So that's what I think. All right. Uh, next question is from Agar OCR Egg. Persistent depressive disorder versus overreaching in training. Separation of symptoms. Um, back and go. Well, overreaching in training is something that can lead to burnout. It can leave, lead to overtraining syndrome. Like it, it can lead to some actual physical things, but... Um, they are not the same. One of them can be cured by backing off in training and taking a real off season. The other one's a psychosomatic issue and you're talking real depression and two plus years of baseline in order to establish that with other existing depression. And that is something that is not sport specific. You know, I think overtraining can lead to depress depressive bouts, of course, and fatigue, but yeah, as we understand, persistent depressive disorder is something uh, that necessarily lasts for over two years, so it's like continual. Now, I don't know if that's how the question was proposed, that maybe overtraining can just cause depression or depression can cause that overtraining feeling in general. Um, overtraining doesn't make me depressed. It makes me tired, maybe a little moody, but I, I don't know. I wish we were qualified to answer that one. We're just not. If anybody wants to chime in on that, though, please do. Yeah. Let us know. And that's it. We're not qualified to answer this. We are running coaches. We are not medically graded mind doctors. And so that is someone you should seek out. You should, if, if you truly believe you have, what is it, persistent uh, depressive disorder, then you should seek out someone that can actually help you work through that. Could you overtrain for a period of two years and induce a depression-like state? Absolutely. It would be 
really miserable and it would be hard to overtrain for two years. It's been done, but um, if you truly believe that you, and I don't know if you're asking, could it cause this? Or I think I have this. Um, if you think you're leading towards it or you do have it, absolutely seek out a professional because they are the people that can help you with it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to give this one much time, but BioCore Fitness asks, when running, how wide or close should your feet be landing apart from each other and why? Pretty close to each other without crossing the center line is a good place to start. Uh, when you see people that are putting one foot directly in front of the other while running, almost like crossing over, that's like that classic bouncy track stride that's not sustainable if you're not running at really high-end speed. If you yes. are if you're running at high-end speed, yeah, you can have a little bit of crossover, but uh, a distance runner really shouldn't because then you're doing a lot of vertical oscillation and you're hitting the ground rigidly rather than powering off the ground. I would say if you have a two inch line drawn, let's say around a track, a two inch white line drawn, if you are running, the inside edge of both of your feet should be touching the outside edge of that line, roughly. They're yeah. almost, the inside edge of each foot might be touching one another or close to it in their landing position, but not crossing over or, or duplicating each, each other's footsteps. Um, you will see people that do land far apart. Our bull-legged folks sometimes do that. Um, but ideally, yeah, you're close to center, but not, I would say, directly over the top of each other in the exact same line, just a slight separation. Um, I don't know. I don't know a ton about it, though, but that's what I, that's what most smooth runners look like. Yeah, it's like cadence. It's like drop. You're going to have your spectrum that everyone falls under, but you should try not to cross over and you should try not to be pretty spread eagle. You should want to be pretty close to each other without touching. Mm -hmm. uh, Darcy Patronus. Darcy asks, any advice for female masters athletes? And my only advice is don't skimp on that speed work, lady, or the strength work. Strength work regularly, heavy strength work regularly, and short, fast, painful interval work regularly not just going out for runs. That's my only advice I'm going to give there. How about you? Outside of that, B1. B1. I would say that the uh, in the endurance world, that like probably 16 to 24 and then masters are the least populated female competition bracket. So B1. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, become a female masters athlete. We need more of you. Your client, Rohan Barr. Rohan. This is an interesting one. Trash talk or mind games to psych out opponents before the race starts? Yes or no? If so, specifics. What do you think about mind games, trash talk, the old Hunter McIntyre approach? I am all for mind games. I'm not personally a fan of trash talk. I think amongst friends, it's a fantastic thing. Amongst people who are not friends, it's a slippery slope and it's kind of a strange thing for adults to engage in. Super entertaining, but if you don't have a pre-existing rela relationship with someone, it's strange. But mind games get inside everyone's head, yeah. And that can be done subtly through Strava. That can be done through posts and workouts. That can be done through just laying down some awesome results that people know is coming. Or that can be done by being a total dark horse anomaly and no one knows what you are. So get in their head. But I'm not a huge trash talk proponent. Yeah, me either. I like ribbing my buddies about it for yeah. sure. But real trash talk, you know, that could be a version of it. I, I do like the proclaiming what you intend to do. That's not trash talk. That would be like, 
I'm going to go and win the U.S. National Series race. Like I plan to go beat everybody, including you, you, and you. I can get it behind that, sure. Um, but like real trash talk, like that stings a little. That's a little personal. I'm going to stay stay away from that. You're just feeling someone else's fire. Yeah, that that has to come with a certain pay grade. That has to come with promotional buys on the line, with with a multi million. Um, person audience on the line that sells fights that sells competition mm-hmm. that comes with a price tag and when a normal person does it you're kind of just being an asshole and when two entertainers do it it's great television so yep. if it's with your friends knock yourself out if you're not getting millions to show up and and go on race day or at least six figures then you're just being a jerk yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to start rolling through some of these pretty quick. So I want to get a, more of these in. We'll just give them more uh, abbreviated answers here for the as we slowly work our way towards finishing this up. Zach Overturf. I have an answer for you, Zach, already in my head. But would you like to learn would like to learn more about training specificity, overload and progression for OCR racing? Basically, how to structure weeks and months before a race with specificity, overloading, progression. <laughs> Zach, <laughs> go listen to our first podcast and just start listening through them if you need to relearn it. Um, that is such a can of wets in episodes, 10 episodes in one. Um, I don't know if you've just started listening to us or you have been listening to us, um, but maybe go back to uh, Training Tuesday number one and just start ripping through them and you're going to be able to create yourself a pretty damn good program based on that. Yep. And if that's not deep enough for you, then go look into some certification courses. Like there is real good knowledge out there that you oftentimes have to pay for. So either buy books or take some coursework. That's how all coaches learn. You take some courses, you read up on everyone who's ever done what you're doing, and you formulate your own experience and your own theory. Yeah, don't get me wrong. It's a great question. It's Sure, it's a million-dollar, multifaceted question. It's just um, cool. It's, there's so much to, to dive into there. Next question, Leif Sunberg. He's a Minnesota guy, American Ninja Warrior dude, does some fun stuff on Instagram. Give him a follow, Leif, L-E-I-F, Sunberg. Uh, another fellow Gingy folk, too, so, you know. And gravitate towards that. Uh, how to best juggle upper body strength training and running? Fair question. You play with it. Um, I find that I like to do it best on my recovery days. Day after a quality day, I'm doing some upper body work. Um, try that for a couple of weeks and then try it after your quality workout on the same day and then try it the day before and test for yourself. You might find it different during different tracks, blocks of training, but Shockingly, I find that I run better the day after a leg workout than I do after an arm workout. Hmm. So I like to keep my upper body work after quality rather than preceding it. Um, you know, I think if you're top heavy and you need to lose some muscle, then we need to maybe talk about dialing that back. But uh, otherwise, hit your upper body strength work as you would like to if weight isn't an issue and muscle mass isn't an issue. And I think it's fine. Again, I'm just a big proponent of uh, heavy weight, lower reps on a lot of stuff. Um, and again, I think sometimes that can help you recover for your next your next running session anyway. So if you're worried about or thinking about cutting it out or trying to figure out where to plug it in, I don't think you do. I think you can keep it in and just play around with how it fits into your week. Mm-hmm. Um, teach CC Johnson, another Minnesota boy, Chris Johnson, um, buddy of mine. He says, and I really want you to answer this honestly, Bracken. Okay. Uh, okay. Even if there weren't any races ever again, would you still train OCR style? Yeah. Why? 
Uh, because I feel like we've stumbled upon something that is true. It is a mentally and physically stimulating style of training that I haven't had in the past. I can't say that if I do only that, I'll be a better runner. But if I do none of it, I'll be a worse runner and overall athlete. I like compromised running. I like how it's introduced me to hills and mountains and technical terrain and trails. And these aren't things I was doing before. I wouldn't have as high of a prevalence of it, but I would not ever get away from it. And bang for its buck, a fan bike 5K or KDE, something like that, that can fill your half hour, an hour with as much work as anything else I've ever done. Okay, fair. I um, I don't know if you meant if like OCR races never happened again, you know, other races were still happening. Um, I certainly wouldn't leave out hill work. I certainly wouldn't leave out trail work. I certainly wouldn't leave out structured interval work. Um, I would keep OCR style work in because I see the benefit of dur durability for sure over courses. And if I were doing trail racing still, OCR work would stay in perfectly and I would keep it in. Now, if I were only doing road racing, I'd have to think hard about it. Um, but I don't plan to, so whatever. Yes, stays in. Yeah. And if there was no road racing and no OCR racing, OCR would set me up for life fitness way better than just running would. Right. Yeah. Good point. It would totally. Uh, one of my athletes and friends of mine, Adam Buck, he's a trail builder. His uh, Instagram handle is Big Boss Buck. You talked about having him on. I would like to have him on as a guest on our podcast. He's a cool dude. He's like a type A gnarly adventurer. He does epic shit. And he builds his, started his own trail building company. And that's what he does with his days. He's And if you recall back to the Ryan Atkins episode, Ryan Atkins uh, did some trail building for a year or two. And he said, if you want to have a physically demanding job or get in shape, just be a trail builder. Well, Adam Buck asks, how best to take account for a physically demanding job in your training plan? And Adam and I have had some conversations recently. He's been feeling smoked, just burnt. I mean, he's had more bad days. He had great days and we were building for a couple of months and he was like, I'm in the best shape I've ever been. And it was true. Guy was doing incredible. And he's just tanked recently. And so you got to ask, where does that balance lie? And he really wants to know because he's in the thick of it right now. What do you tell to him? I think that's maybe the most difficult obstacle to deal with as a coach is non-negotiables in someone's life. And I don't, I don't have an answer. It's a, it is your, you as a coach, you are going to have a dating process with him where you really get to know his job and what he can and can't handle and how to fit things in. It might be a, all your quality work happens on the weekends type thing. And we are doing nothing but recovery work and non-impact cardio throughout the week. It might be a, he has to get it done in the morning and he's just doing less quality days in volume than anyone else. I, I don't know. It would be a, a trial and error process on a case-by-case -case basis. And I don't envy you. That is a tricky situation to deal with. Um, well, we took a mandatory deload week. That was my first. He was just toast. I said, you're done for a week. Don't do shit. Um, he's coming back and he's starting to feel better. However, I think my approach with that person, him, he doesn't even know. I haven't made his next training plan yet. But um I think we're going to go two up weeks and one down week. We're going to, we're going to deload him a week more often, which is going to hopefully get ahead of the curve. And we're going to really heavily deload. I think I want to try to keep on his training on those two weeks and then really let him reset. Keep on it. We're going to maybe cut 50% of volume. 
and we're going to do it every third week instead of every fourth week. Um, so in that case, if you have a physically demanding job and you're noticed fatigue, I agree with you, Bracken, get it done in the morning, somehow find a way to cut other stressors out of your life and get the sleep you need. I know that's an issue for him. Um, or, uh, I think maybe just get it predicting the fatigue and getting ahead of it with more frequent, more aggressive deload weeks in your, in your builds. I wonder if he could benefit from the Hobie call setup of I'm taking a 20 to 30 minute nap every lunch break, no matter what, if he just said, I'm forcing this issue. Mm -hmm. We'll have more of a chat about it, but I think it's a really good question. Cause I think a lot of people, not a lot, but there's a few of you out there with demanding jobs that at the end of the day, you're just smoke. He was showing me his heart rate data and like how much time on feet he had been traveling and from the day and how many, the caloric deficit the guy is in by the time his workout even starts. It's like, sometimes he'll show up at 6am and go till 6pm and he's on his feet trail building for an entire day. And he's already burned 5,000 calories. And now he has an 80 minute, he'll repeat workout too. And <laughs> yeah. where are you at? A guy can't put enough calories in his body, but anyways, uh, eat more too. Freaking eat more. Everybody needs to eat more in that position, but um, should we move to the next one? Yeah, that's a tough one. It is, but it's a real one and I get it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, Colin Lee OCR advice on water obstacles, running through water and dealing wet and cold. Dealing with wet and cold. What do you say? Uh, Keep moving. Practice it. Come up with the gear that you need. Um, and, and I have a different gear set up on cold, wet, or hot, wet races. If you're going to be getting wet, it's got to be something that you can keep dry or that will dry out or you don't wear it. And yeah, you got to keep moving. You have to attack a water obstacle. You have to come out of it with purpose and know the next quarter mile is going to suck, but my engine is going to take over and heat me up or it's going to get me back into to movement. But I think that that water based obstacles might be the single easiest thing to improve in terms of bang for your buck on workouts. You can do three to five of those workouts and be set for a year. Explain. Uh, there have been times in my life where I was prepping for a really swim heavy race and doing two to three works. Uh, weeks of some specific transition into out of water workouts set me up for like for the next year I was good at transitioning mm -hmm. in and out of water and just brushing up on it from time to time kept me sharp I mean it's all about the hands and if it's something you really struggle with uh carrying an extra pair of gloves in a ziploc bag is gonna lot or mittens actually are better in a pair of ziploc bags uh, go a really long ways in rewarming up those hands even if they get wet if it's raining, you know, and it's wet and you're cold, even a damp, like closed glove is going to generate more heat than like a slightly less damp hand exposed to the air. So like even in Tahoe, when I wore my bleg mitts um, after the swim, I had my bleg mitts on during the swim. They flopped around, were full of water. But by the time I got them back over my hands and they generated enough heat to have my hands working again for the next obstacle. So Second pair of gloves or bleg mitts are super important. And then um, get uh, just stay moving. A lot of people let the cold win. It's the biggest mistake. You got to get out of that cold water and you got to work even harder. <clears throat> you got to surge. You have to, your body may feel dysfunctional and not fluid and that's too bad. Like you just got to push. And that's the best way to get through it is work as hard as possible. That's not the day to take it easy. And if it's cold enough, yeah, hand warmers, bring them along. Keep them dry. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you got to, that's one of those, you have to go in with a plan. 
you have to go in knowing I'm going to breathe all intentionally all the way through this water. And then I have two minutes when I get out to get my body back. And you have to follow mm -hmm. your plan and stick to it, no matter how mind-numbingly cold it is. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, I have three questions left and two I'm going to couple together. Okay. So uh, Leslie Huffwoman asks, ideas, tips on ways to train for obstacles you don't have access to. Good question. And I'm going to combine that with C. Fallish. Um, I believe that's an athlete of yours, isn't oh. it? Yeah. Says, how would you build bulletproof grip or grip endurance for a mandatory completion type of race? And I like to couple these together because you typically we don't have access to mandatory completion race obstacles very often. So these can go together. So bulletproof your grip and ideas and ways to improve that. Um, first of all, uh, you need to get comfortable doing grip work often. A lot of times people throw it in like once a week or something or twice a week at the beginning um, as they're learning this. I think there should be a component of this multiple times a week as you're building up your tolerance. So first of all, like thinking once a week, I'm going to go play around at the ninja gym or do some bar work isn't enough. It's just not enough. So more uh, repetitive exposure is going to be my first piece of advice. I'll let you piggyback on that. I have more specifics, but that's the first thing I would tell people. Yeah, I think there's a gym component and I think there's a functional component. I work on some crushing, some power, some stamina there, but then you got to go get thousands of reps in. And I think that everyone should boulder. If you have time, get to a rock climbing gym in boulder. I don't. I, I don't make time for it. And I am aware that I am hurting my cause by doing that. Perfect world with gyms nearby me or no COVID or whatever, I'd be, I would be bouldering. And um, mm -hmm. in terms of obstacles you don't have access to, you break them down into what their core pieces are. Is it a pull? Is it a transition? Is it a swing? And then you replicate it the best you can. Uh, one of when I want to get good at fast walls, sometimes I find that walls take a lot out of me during a race. When I accelerate in, try to hit it hard, I go to the local um, baseball diamond and they have their fences with the little um, plastic circular tubing at the top that rings it. And I just do run intervals back and over that fence, getting up over fast. It's not, it's got the plastic on top, so it doesn't rip me up. And I just do those. It's not a wall, but I hit it over and over. You know, you just find door pull-ups instead of doing an eight-foot wall. Things that mimic that, and you just replicate it the best you can. Um, I find that it's m more raw grip strength than grip endurance that gets people when conditions are poor. I also find that on mandatory completion obstacles. Um, not the case for everybody. Sometimes it's the endurance component that gives out. But my suggestion is to buy yourself a set of fat grips online. Instead of using a standard uh, thickness bar for your work, start doing some bigger stuff like fat grips for dead hangs, add them to dumbbells for farmer's holds, things like that. That really improves your pinch grip power, your ability to clamp onto something that isn't stable. Um, I also find that doing pinch grip work, uh, the ends of dumbbells, things like that, where you have to clamp onto something, you can't get your hand all the way around it like a skinny bar, really does well for those uh, movements that require power, a fat monkey bars, a Z wall, vertical nunchucks, things that require a lot of power to hold on. If you improve that power, you're going to improve your endurance, in my opinion. So get a set of fat grips, find a fat bar, do a lot of pinch grip with a vertical dumbbell hold. Um, those are gym things you can do. 
alone to just improve that power. That's the biggest thing. Most anybody can go hold onto a skinny pull-up bar for a minute. How many obstacles are you on for a minute or longer? Hardly any. It's the power along the way and the, the ability to move your body through space where people struggle with. So um, I would work on that raw pinch grip strength, pinch gripping bumper plates, um, things like that. You'd be surprised how well that translates if you're struggling with some obstacle completion. Um, so I would, that's an easy thing to start with that will translate to whatever obstacle it is, is I think the point I'm getting across. And then I think you need to approach it like you would approach running speed. You don't clench and tense up and try to run fast for, for an hour. That just doesn't work. You have to put out your maximum speed with your minimal energy output. And the same yes. happens with grip. People burn through their energy stores so quickly on grip because every muscle in their entire body is clenched to the maximum exertion. Mm -hmm. You can pinch grip 45 pounds or you can relax pinch grip 45 pounds. And the difference is huge. You can muscle through a rig or you can relax through a rig. And one will get you through one obstacle and then you're gonna fail. And the other will get you through all the obstacles. So getting efficient and relaxed with putting your grip strength out is a huge component. And that's why I like rock climbing for people because you can't power your way through or you can't do a second and third run through that. But the more you relax, the better you get at moving through space with minimal effort. That's something that's not talked about enough is over gripping and yeah. over squeezing and over tensing on obstacles. Everybody gets up on something and hangs on for dear life and they burn themselves out. Um, your analogy was perfect. You don't run it completely all out and all muscle fibers intense for a whole super distance Spartan race. You run with pacing, pacing and you run relaxed and you try to do obstacles the same way and you're going to last a lot longer on them. And bouldering, you're right, is a great way to do that because you, it is an endurance game and you have to just use the the, the palpable uh, finger holds and, and things like that. So I like that. I like that perspective. But yes, don't get on there and grip like hell. That's not yeah. the idea. That's not going to help endurance. And this is one of those where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The more strength and obstacle confidence you have, the more you're relaxed through it. Then the less mm -hmm. you have, the more you over grip and you burn through all your money really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, let's move to the last question and then we're going to put a bow tie on this. Uh, average to elite asks when training for a mountain race example, Palmerton, do you still train speed or do you solely focus on incline? Uh, yeah, I still train speed, but then I do a vast majority at incline. We've talked about this before. We believe that intensity trumps miles per hour. And so if you're training for Palmerton, yeah, you can still do your VO2 max or faster work, but a good percentage of it should be done at incline. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would say if I have mountain races coming up, when I look at my schedule, because I live somewhere flat, I don't know where you live average to elite, but um, I say at least two days a week, I have to be getting vert, whether it's easy vert or it's hard vert, it's vert on my long run or purposeful vert in intervals. Um, twice a week, my intent is I don't care how far I go, I only care about how high up and down I'm going. So. I would say if you got a mountain race on your calendar, minimum of two days a week where you're you're climbing, like that's the purpose of your day. Uh, the efforts can vary, the purpose of that workout can vary, but I think that's a good starting point. And that's gonna mean every week, at minimum every other week, doing quality work going up as well. Mm -hmm. That's where I stand on that. And if you have downhills, you can get your overspeed work downhill. If you don't, 
flat ground speed work will translate to downhills better than running uphills will. So yep. then you still keep a flat ground day fast per week. Yep. Yeah. I think that's simple enough, really. Yeah. Yeah. I have in my personal Instagram, I put up a poll and I still have like 10 questions we didn't get to. So if you are one of those people, damn it, I'm sorry, but we're hitting the two hour mark here and uh, somebody's got to get back to work, which is me. So, and we will hit these in a future episode. Yeah. I'll save, I'll save the questions we didn't get to. So they're in our cash for sure. Um, anything you want to tack on to today? Any icing on the cake you want to layer in there, Bracken? Ah, uh, Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised at the outpouring of messages and gratitude we had for the mental toughness episode. Yeah, that caught me off guard. So thank you. Thanks for reaffirming that that was worth putting out there. And again, thanks for taking us in the workout. You guys are raising the community up by being diligent with your mental training. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, Till next time. Keep the questions coming. Mm -hmm.